Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker. This first season is an exploration of race and the news media. And today we're taking a look at the media's role and responsibility in setting the tone, especially in respect to potential conversations news reports can encourage. We're so glad today to be joined by three guests whose experience in newsrooms range from the local to the national. We welcome today Professor Paul Quadros, who is an award-winning investigative reporter and author whose work has focused on issues of race and poverty in America and has appeared in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Time Magazine, Salon.com, the Chicago Reporter, and other national and local publications. Now teaching at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill's Hussman School of Journalism and Media, he also serves as the chair and executive director of the UN Scholars Latino Initiative, a three-year mentoring and college preparatory program between UNC students and Latino high school students at six area high schools. Welcome, Professor Cuadros. Thank you, Kathy. Glad to be here. Thank you. And we also welcome today Ralph Shaw, who is the morning host at WTOB Radio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This is the most recent role in a decades-long career that has included time as a news director, assignment editor, reporter, news anchor, and contract news correspondent in both radio and television, ranging from local affiliates to national news outlets, including the Associate Associated Press, ABC, CBS, Mutual News, NBC, NPR, and UPI. Welcome to you, Ralph. Hi, thanks for having me on. Great. And now we also welcome Skip Foster, the former president and publisher of the Tallahassee Democrat. His journalism career spanned more than 30 years. A one-time sports writer, Foster's career began in a newsroom and his news instincts never dulled. Even though his name never really appeared in a byline of a news article, he brought major stories into the newsroom from sources he cultivated himself. He has been called a consummate newsman, always determined to get to the truth and present it fairly. Today, he has now begun a consulting business in Tallahassee, and we are so grateful for his presence here today as well. So welcome to you, Skip. Thanks, Kathy. It's great to see you again. Good to see you. Let us begin here. Um, we are focusing this first season of Roundtables on Race on, on race in the news media because of the vast influence that the media really has on society. I think that the news media was once considered to be a service that supplied just facts and data of an event. But more and more people today believe that the news media is, uh, and news stories are generally told from a specific point of view. So with that in mind, Skip, I wanna ask you first, what is the responsibility of media to set the tone in news and storytelling? Well, I think it's a great responsibility, and I and I worry that uh, uh, increasingly uh, kind of dry, factual, down the middle journalism is uh, becoming more scarce. Um, there are folks in our business that uh, that actually uh, are advocating for that to happen. 
I'm saying moving away from more objective journalism and you hear people talking about, you know, both sideism and that to, on some issues, there really aren't two sides of the story. And I think that's true on a select few issues, but unfortunately in our polarized world, people tend to think they're really, really right about things that like half of the country disagrees with them on. And, and so I worry about that. I, I, I think that um, uh, I personally, I think partisan journalism is an oxymoron. And, uh, and I think that we should really, uh, I, I would advocate for us as an industry, really returning to presenting facts, letting people make up their own minds. And then if they wanna go off to more partisan sources, let's face it, there's not a shortage of those uh, right now uh, in America at least, and, and there's plenty of ways to find them. So I, I worry about it. Mm. Okay, so Paul, you are uh, preparing students to go out into the world of journalism. How do you answer Skip's um, concerns that we have gotten far away from partisan news? And what is the posture that most students anticipate journalism will be like as a career as they come out, out of universities today? Well, it's definitely different from when I went to journalism school at Northwestern uh, at Medill. Um, I mean, the landscape of journalism has changed and uh, now it's fractured into all different forms of journalism, uh, both the traditional journalism of newspapers, uh, the broadcast journalism, uh, cable news, uh, social media. I mean, you name it, bloggers, uh, people that are doing journalism on their own. Uh, it, it has fractured into a variety of different uh, um, uh, outlets in which people are now get, getting their information. And uh, sometimes that information can be accurate and sometimes it, it, it's not accurate. Um, and that's a real challenge, I think, for, for audiences. For students, I mean, we're, we're teaching uh, basic skills in terms of reporting and writing. And those basic skills, of course, deal with accuracy, uh, accountability, and reporting on the news in a factual and professional way. At the same time, we have uh, a country that is going through change. And um, I think that change is being reflected in, in the media as well, and who's producing content uh, uh, in the media, uh, uh, along with uh, that content being produced in news. And so that's another sort of uh, thing that has, that has happened. And um, uh, people are finding outlets to be able to write the news that they feel uh, reflects their vision of the world. And, uh, and that's kind of what we're seeing today. Th this is one of the things that uh, Skip, uh, uh, you know, you're talking about in terms of where we're going with regard to news um, uh, in the sense that it's being challenged by other perspectives. So Ralph, you've been in the business a long, long time. So obviously the news business has evolved over the last many years in which you have been um, engaged in this business. Um, are, we at a, are we at a sort of a dangerous point right now? Because if people can write their own version of news, does that mean that we are getting away from fact telling or are we and more involved in storytelling and what's the difference in your mind? I believe we have definitely gotten away from the informative aspect of news. It's gone from being an informative uh, source of information to being a motivational source. 
rather than being uh, an agency of information, a lot of news organizations now uh, don't operate in the public trust. They're trying to push an agenda. And that's something that really concerns me. Uh, in this day and time, uh, being a reporter uh, can be dangerous because not only physical danger can be uh, uh, something that we all are concerned about, it's uh, a situation where a lot of people don't believe you. And they say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And uh, I had a conversation with someone who disagreed with an opinion uh, or a story that I had put forth. And I said, you've known me for a long time. You've known me for over 50 years. And I am putting forth factual information. Why do you think that I'm now trying to slant that? And they said, well, because we are of a different political affiliation, and I don't believe you. And so I, I think it's gotten to a point now that people don't trust the media because uh, they feel, for whatever reason, that there is an agenda out there being pushed, and the operation of news organizations such as newspapers, print, and broadcast have gotten away from that right down the middle of the road uh, kind of situation where uh, we're putting the information out there for people to make their own decisions. And instead, we've gotten to the point now that we're trying to influence their decisions. And I think we're really on some dangerous ground. You know, I'll, I'll add to that. You know, there's a, an incredible mm -hmm. credibility gap that has opened up in news. And sure. um, uh, that's a real serious issue. And a lot of it deals with media literacy uh, for audiences and uh, perhaps uh, the industry not, or the, the educational system not educating uh, uh, audiences on how to be media literate and how to be critical with the, uh, the, the news that they actually are, are consuming. And uh, I think that's one of the, the, the most serious challenges that we face in terms of a credibility gap with regard to news. And following up on what Paul said, I think so many people now, are getting their news from only one source. And so whatever that source is pushing, whether it's left, right, black, white, green, blue, they're following that lead and they're not getting the information from other sources so they can make a wise decision. Uh, going back to what I said, they're being motivated to follow a path rather than think for themselves. So if we have this credibility gap in all of our communities, um, and one of the things that we really want to look at is, um, you know, the concerns of in the past, how communities of color have been treated in the news media, right? So if we're now at a place where the news is even more polarized, how do we think that that affects our ability to do some balanced storytelling, especially around racial issues? Well, I, I can, I'll start um, because, you know, as a white guy, I'm eminently qualified to answer that question. <laughs> That's a joke. If you can, it's a podcast, so you can't see my sarcastic smile. Uh, I have a face for podcasts, by the way. Um, so the, the, what I, one of the things I worry about is that really the two-dimensional nature of our news coverage right now. So the advent of uh, social media uh, and the internet uh, created great opportunity in one sense. It, it uh, 
it brought uh, the opportunity for immediacy to our coverage, right? And so you didn't have to wait for the paper the next day or for the six o'clock news to come on. Um, the problem is that that tends to uh, be a, a depth charge. Uh, and the pun there is it may, depth is, uh, becomes more difficult to attain because you're in this kind of constant updating and, and the kind of deadline pressure never ceases. So that doesn't work well for uh, all sorts of, of types of content and, and definitely on that list is uh, content that has uh, a racial component to it or racial um, sensitivities. It's a lot easier to just refer to the Latino community uh, without diving in and understanding that that is an unbelievably broad term. And we certainly saw this in the elections in Florida where people kind of woke up and said, oh wait, you mean, uh, the Latino population doesn't all vote the same and is made up of all sorts of different um, uh, uh, factions. And so that's one of the things I worry about when it comes to this issue, Kathy, is that we're just gotten really two dimensional. And, you know, guess what? Things didn't get less complex just because the Internet age dawned. Right. Mm -hmm. Environmental policy, law enforcement, you know, all of these things are incredibly multidimensional and our coverage seems to fit that less and less as we go on. There's a, uh, there's a real uh, uh, problem with legacy for uh, mainstream uh, media, uh, news media in uh, communities of color. Um, uh, communities of color have, have uh, felt that they haven't been covered uh, accurately, that they haven't been listened to, that institutions have been listened to before uh, their stories. Uh, the idea, the, the issue of police brutality, for instance, is an issue that I covered in the city of Chicago uh, on the south side, on the west side, in Latino communities and in black communities. And, uh, but it's only the advent of people's cell phones and their video taping of actual events that that issue comes really to the fore, despite decades of complaints and stories of communities telling reporters and telling news media that this is occurring in their communities and not being listened to. So when we go back to that uh, idea of credibility with regard to the news media and especially the, the traditional mainstream news media, uh, there's, a real there's a real credibility gap with regard to communities of color. Um, and part of that is uh, the legacy of these companies, these uh, news media companies uh, not hiring uh, reporters uh, that can reflect those communities and, and access them, uh, not having editors uh, within newsrooms that can understand different communities, and um, uh, creating a, a legacy in which uh, many people have doubts about whether the news media can actually cover their communities. And it is a challenge. So let me ask Ralph, um, you know, um, I worked in a news radio station operation for several years. And I know that most news stories are told in something around 45 to 60 seconds. <laughs> but it still did not diminish the necessity to present as accurate and as objective a story at that point in time as you could. So even though today we have the immediacy of the internet and all of these other, you know, cell phone newscasters and all of that. How do we, um, for those of you who are committed to something more in depth, 
um, how do we convince those organizations to kind of return to a place where we have more balanced news and more objective news? Well, that's a hard question. Um, I have to go back to uh, 1987 when the Fairness Doctrine was done away with uh, for broadcast. And prior to 1987, I think that there was uh, better coverage on all fronts. But then taking it a step further, there used to be something for broadcast called ascertainment. And you went out in the community and you asked leaders, faith leaders, government leaders, uh, all kinds of different people, what they thought was the most important issues for that particular community. And then you formulated that together. And with that information, you were able to uh, look at your community, whether it be a small 3000 population city or a large city like Chicago. And with that, you could then center in on stories that were of interest. But then you had to get down. And as you mentioned, in a 40 second story, it's really, really hard to do anything much more than just give the when, why, what, where, and why. But then you had the public affairs shows that you could go in depth and try to do a little bit more uh, explaining of what's going on. And I think that's where broadcast, both radio and TV, has caused a lot of problems among the general public. They're getting the Cliff Notes version of the story rather than going to the local newspaper or the regional newspaper or a magazine to get the background to understand it more. People got to the point uh, over the past several years that they really don't care. They just want to know the headlines, you know, who was shot and why, who did it, and they go on. And then they form their opinions, and I think erroneously. And with, with broadcast, I think we do a poor job at trying to explain things because in many instances, especially with racial issues, I just cringe when I turn on TV or hear another radio station, when I hear something that's racially motivated, in my opinion, when they didn't have to go there at all. And I think we're to blame for doing that. And the only way that we can get out of that rut is through education. And I'm not sure if we're in a position industry-wide to be able to do that. You know, one of the uh, major things facing the industry today is the collapse of local newspapers and, yep. and newspapers in general. Mm. Uh, we're seeing a collapse right now. We, um, here at the um, journalism school at, at, at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, uh, we've done research on what's known as news deserts that are appearing all over the country. And uh, communities are lacking information uh, because community newspapers are, are folding, uh, unable to get any ad revenue to sustain themselves and unable to find uh, a formula to sustain themselves that, that goes beyond that. And so communities are losing out on getting basic news information, covering school boards, covering municipal budgets, covering all those things that newspapers have done traditionally in the past those things are disappearing. And people are picking up their news in all different types of different places because of that. And um, uh, that's leading to people uh, coming up with erroneous, uh, perhaps erroneous thoughts with regard to events that are happening or getting uh, information from uh, social media sites 
that may have agendas. Um, there's a real fractalization that's happening with regard to news because of the collapse of the newspapers. So, so well, I, I, Paul, I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe that you've hit the nail on the head there. It is uh, the bottom line. And when newspapers and radio stations and television stations start consolidating their operations and the ad dollars go south, uh, they don't have the opportunity then to, uh, to put out the product that they used to. Uh, here in the Piedmont Triad, you have uh, co-ownership between the uh, Winston-Salem Journal and the uh, Greensboro News and Record. And right now you look at both papers, they're basically the same thing. They're just rearranged in a different place in the paper. And the same thing has happened in broadcast with fewer owners. You've had the consolidation and there's not been that effort because back when uh, news really was in its uh, supreme role, there was the idea, this can make money for us. But now the owners are realizing, well, we can cut this and save money. And as a result, a lot of papers and a lot of stations are starting to go under. So Skip is a former president and, <laughs> of an, and publisher of a newspaper, and then one that was owned by a, a conglomerate, uh, Gannett Newspapers. How do you weigh in on this topic? Well, I'm glad Paul laid it out well. The, 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 there are lots of journalism issues out there for us to talk about, but the failure of the newspaper business actually has very little to do with journalism and very much to do with a, with a business model that failed, right? So we're, we're uh, the monetizing uh, what are still prodigious digital audiences is, has been the challenge. Their newspapers are generating reams of, of uh, uh, page views of engagement and all those kind of things. Um, so that's not the, it's not a journalism problem. I think the, one of the problems is though, that uh, th this kind of balance between uh, gaining audience and traction and doing true journalism. And so uh, I think that uh, the, there is a sweet spot there. I mean, in a perfect world, we would just do our journalism and it wouldn't care and we wouldn't care how many people read it. Uh, well, maybe not in a perfect world, in an idealistic world. Um, so there's a, we're trying to find a sweet spot there. And that doesn't always lend itself to equitable coverage, uh, including racially equitable coverage. I'll give you an example. Tallahassee, Kathy, as you know, from your uh, um, precious time there, uh, has two major universities, Florida State and Florida A&M, the latter being an HBCU. Well, uh, we at the paper received complaints all the time from Florida A&M alumni and boosters about inequitable coverage in football between uh, the Rattlers and the Seminoles. Well, only a fool operating my business would have uh, said, okay, we're going to cover those two uh, things equally because they just didn't have equal interest and they never were. We Florida State coverage dwarfed uh, the interest in that, dwarfed the interest in Florida A&M. Now, did we cover them perfectly proportioned to their interest? No. 
uh, Florida A&M probably got more coverage kind of on a per capita of interest measurement than uh, than it would have, you know, otherwise. Uh, but those are, I mean, those are hard. Those are hard conversations when you have a, a, a green and orange clad uh, Florida A&M uh, alumni who cares so deeply about that institution and their football program. And you have to say, you know, no, of course, we're not going to cover those things equally, just like the Chicago Tribune isn't going to cover a high school the same as it does the Bears, right? Doesn't mean the high school isn't important. So those are, those are that, I can use that example to show that the kind of tension between giving people what they want and what they should have, that's always been the case in the newspaper industry, but now we can really measure it. Like we know exactly what that traffic and engagement looks like. Then the question is, what's the tail and what's the dog, right? Are you letting the interest drive the coverage or does the coverage drive the interest? And those are complicated things. I was never smart enough to fully figure it out. Just trying to find some sort of middle road, you know? Um, so this, this is perfect. So is, there, is it a possibility though, that the reason that the argument um, about um, FAMU and versus FSU, the football program, was really more than just a story about football, but was really a um, concern that the black community as a whole never got oh, the kind of attention and of coverage. Course. Of course it was, of course it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that brings up an interesting point where we are today. You know, we are in the midst of a tremendous demographic change in our country. We are going from a predominantly white country to not a predominantly white country. And uh, we're, we're going into uh, a future that is going to be pluralistic. And so these communities that have not had coverage before to the extent that they may have wanted are viewing traditional news organizations with a skeptical eye because of that as their communities emerge. And so, you know, what does the news industry do to now gain credibility with those audiences that they may not have provided the attention that they perhaps should have in the past uh, uh, based on the experience of people in those communities themselves? That's a great question to ask uh, the news media. I think it needs to ask itself that. Uh, how, does it build uh, how does it build credibility with uh, 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 this uh, emerging audience? And I think we've talked a lot about these fractured news agencies, right? So that people are going off and they're getting their news from so many different places. But then how can we come back to a place of center as long as there's a recognition that d communities are going to be covered so differently and it's really going to be based maybe more on the business model of the organization than on the journalism model of the organization. So what's the enticement for people to come back to your news, to your news organizations? That's a $64,000 question. I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not sure if there is anyone out there that can answer that factually because it's just one of those things that with all of the sources that we have right now, people who want to believe in XYZ are going to follow whatever is putting out XYZ. And if you're trying to be right down the middle with your coverage and be fair about everything, if someone doesn't believe you, no matter what you do, they're not going to believe you. 
And with that, I don't know if if we will ever recover because of the fractionalization of what's happened. It's it's a shame, in my opinion. Uh, you know, the internet's a great thing, but if you want to use that as your only source and just go to those particular things that interest you, I'm not sure that uh, that people can be educated and brought back to the center. I don't know if there is an answer. Yeah, I think one thing we really lost, Kathy, when we got rid of publishers and when we downsized the number of editors is newspapers used to be intimately involved in their community. You would have editors and publishers and even reporters that were members of Rotary and served on the chamber and United Way boards and 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 ran across you know a diverse group of people in those communities and could make the case of what we were doing and boy there's such just and and even worse now in a covid world where we've lost like we lost all human contact for and so you've really it's it's so easy to take shots now at you know the media and media types and and when you don't see somebody in person it's a lot easier to criticize them right and, yeah. and and the other thing newspapers have always been hesitant to do wrongly is to communicate about what they did why and how they reached decisions and and asking for impact bob Steele was a guy down at the pointer institute uh, who chaired their ethics program for a long time and he always talked about having rabbis in the community people you could call and this i think this would be particularly true it was for me um in communities of color where you could call and say hey we're kind of thinking about doing this and it just doesn't quite feel right in terms of racial balance or i feel like we may not have a historical context here and that stuff you know now everybody's just kind of offering their little silos you know, cranking things out. It, it's not a good setup. You know, one of the things that the internet has done um, has allowed uh, people within those communities to uh, report on their own. And um, so, you know, the uh, Florida A&M um, uh, team, football team, a blogger takes that up and makes a website and now is covering that and doing it uh, to the extent that those fans want. And so that's an audience that's been pulled away. Um, the decision by the local paper not to put as much emphasis on that particular program versus another program ends up resulting in a loss of audience later on uh, in, in, in time, uh, taken up by an individual who, who can develop their own little business off that. So here's the question then. When we have major news events in the world, when we have the George Floyd murder, is there more of an opportunity and a possibility that people are going to come back to traditional news sources, or are they going to rely more heavily then on those blogs and all of those other places where they're getting their news for you know ordinary um, news events? I think from an initial standpoint, people will go to the traditional sources and get you know the basic outline of what's happened, like what happened uh, yesterday morning in South Florida with the collapse of the condo. Uh, you know, everyone jumped on CNN or uh, Fox News or CNBC to get whatever information they could. And, and this is a tragedy. There, there's nothing black or white here. It's a tragedy. 
But then on something like uh, a racial shooting, then after that initial information, they're going to start gravitating toward their particular sources of news. I have to go back to uh, when I was at WSJS in Winston-Salem. Uh, we had a very good relationship with someone from uh, the Black Panthers. And anytime something came up that was racially motivated, we would call one of the representatives and say, give us your take on it. Because we were trying to be fair. We, we knew what the facts were. We reported the facts, but then we wanted to see what the community thought. And then we even took it further when we would do election coverage and around Winston-Salem, uh, there were white communities and black communities. And so we would have an expert in talking about, let's say this particular precinct is still out and it's all white, how are they going to vote? Then we would have in the Black Panther representative to talk about, okay, what the issues were and how that affected that particular vote. So with that, I, I think we're, we're looking at now with this fractionalization and people going to their own individual sources, we lose that opportunity from mainstream media to show that we can do the job, but people are just not tuning into us. So as a final question, because I know that time is of the essence, I'd like to ask you all, how can we have good conversations between our communities, between um, our communities, as long as we are all um, moving into this kind of silo type of news, right? Which then allows us to all get our own version of facts. I think it was somebody in the Trump administration who used to talk about alternative facts. Um, so if we're going to have those kinds of things, how then can we ever have conversations that allow us to bring our communities together instead of watching them drift further and further apart? And um, for this, I'm gonna start with you, Paul. Well, I think one of the things uh, that, uh, since I'm, I'm teaching here, is uh, professionalism and uh, the tenets of journalism to be accurate, to be fair, to be balanced, and to be professional in reporting uh, news events and in investigating uh, things that happen in our community. And uh, by doing so, I think that those particular facts uh, will, will win out uh, uh, for audiences to to grab a hold of and to have confidence in. You know, I'm going to uh, step back just a little bit from that and come up with an idea here that you know, as our country is changing um, demographically, uh, one of the things that needs to change is the idea of perspective when it comes to news. And this is something I've just been kind of thinking about. Um, uh, uh, communities of color want their perspective. Um, within news decisions themselves. And that's a very th different thing than what we've had in the past. And um, how we deal with that, I think is a, is a big question going forward with regard to journalism. Good. And so <clears throat> to you, Ralph, do you see an opportunities where we can bring communities together as long as we aren't doing this kind of fractionalized news telling? I think it's gonna take a lot of work and a lot of prayer. Um, we're in a situation right now where there's not an easy fix. There's not a quick fix. This is something that's going to take a lot of work. And I think with the faith-based community, 
uh, that we're in in the Episcopal Church. I think that's something that I know we're addressing at Holy Trinity in Greensboro, and I think every parish across the nation is, is looking at what the problems are and how we can affect change. And it's going to take work and prayer. And beyond that, I'm not sure what we can do. So, Skip? Yeah, so maybe every time, maybe when I got cussed out on the phone for doing something wrong, I should have just said, and also with you as my uh, response. But uh, uh, no, I think that, um, I think we've got to get back to reaching out to directly. It makes us better journalists because it gives us good sourcing as opposed to just kind of relying on uh, government sources of information and those in the private sector as well. But, you know, we've done such a terrible job as an industry um, hiring uh, with through with with diversity as a driver. Uh, but I also worry that even if we get better at that, you know, hiring an African-American and saying, OK, well, now you're responsible for making sure we're covered for, you know, African-American issues. No. You know, uh, white editors and publishers need to be reaching out to that community as a part of their job, uh, not because they have to, but because they should, because it makes them better editors and publishers, because it um, helps them understand perspective, because it helps them get stories they wouldn't have had otherwise. And boy, we have just, and especially in the post-COVID world, lost those those humanizing connections that I think help us in, in multiple ways uh, uh, in the jobs that we do. And so I, I think we've got to get back to three-dimensional and multi-dimensional journalism, and that's only done through true relationships, not checking off boxes. Well, I want to say thank you all so very much for this very fascinating, scintillating conversation. It has really been great. And I want to thank you, my guests, Skip Foster, Ralph Shaw, and Paul Quadros for being with us today. And to you, our audience, we hope that you will join us again on the next episode on Roundtables on Race.